You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined by Oliver Camacho and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, Ashley couldn't get an interview with Kermit the Frog, but she does have a segment all about the intersection between the Muppets and opera. Hot take, all the cool opera singers hang with Miss Piggy. And in the two-minute drill, like the finale to the Dialogues of the Carmelites, ENO musicians get their redundancy notices and sing all the way to the guillotine. Yikes. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, click follow on Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign, send us a voice memo, or email us your hot takes, mailbag at operaboxscore.com, or you can just record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say tab on our website, operaboxscore.com. However you contribute, you'll get an OBS beer coaster, an OBS lapel pin, and a number one OBS fan foam finger just for sharing your own hot take. That's a lot of OBS. Oliver Camacho, <laughs> welcome back to the show. Uh, thank you. I've been here longer than you, so should I be welcoming you back to the host chair? I feel very welcome. <laughs> Good. Ashley Hardgrave, that's all Oliver has to say, I guess, yeah. so please save us from this uh, this purgatory we're in. Well, you know, this is also kind of the darkest week of the year because it's the first full week without any football. However, mm. the sisters are doing it for themselves. Iowa's Caitlin Clark made history on Thursday as women's college basketball's all-time leading scorer. She is currently wow. at 3,000. 569 points and counting. There are Jeez. four regular season games left before tournament play even starts. She is seriously the GOAT. This is a true story about me. When I was in elementary school, I played basketball for four years in a row. And cumulatively in games, I got a grand total of three points. Let's talk some opera. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. Oh, you guys, I'm so, I I am so excited. This segment is bringing me so much joy. We are going to talk about opera and my personal favorite, more than most people, the Muppets. So we Mm. here at OBS love some intersectionality. That's kind of their whole brand is sports (laughs) and opera and its intersection. So there is this captivating connection between opera and the Muppets. That means the Muppet Show, and it means Sesame Street, even the Fraggles and Fraggle Rock. Mm. All of them have this intersection with opera and these greater classical music spheres. You know, and here's the thing. There's so much in this topic. There's really not time for us to cover everything unless we had like a four-hour episode, which I'm not going to do to you guys on this fine Monday evening as we record. <laughs> but I wanted to walk you through some of the highlights and some of the trivia, and I hope that it gets you and you listeners curious enough to explore this amazing, amazing topic on your own. So for me, one of the things that makes the Muppets work for generations of folks together, parents, children, everybody in between, this simultaneous dance of this like silly, obvious humor for kids, and then like 
sly, clever, hidden writing that's for adults, you know? Because it's like, I loved watching things like The Muppet Show as a kid. And then when I watched it as an adult, I'm like, oh my God, that's really funny. But there, it's jokes that went full over my head, you know, as, as a little kid. But the, that sort of humor style, you know, that elevated in plain sight, silly sort of stuff, it works really well with opera artists that don't really take themselves too seriously. Mm-hmm, opera doesn't yeah. have to take itself very seriously. And sometimes it's more fun when it doesn't. And this is where I ask my two fine gentlemen on the line with me. What <laughs> is your connection or your experience with Muppets, if any, Weston? Well, I, I know when I was a kid, I watched, I didn't watch really any of the Muppet show or Fraggle Rock, but I did watch Sesame Street. And uh, I remember it was always exciting to me because I, you know, it was one of the few places in popular culture where you could see opera represented, I or not even just opera, but like classical music in general, or even like, you know, um, one one clip that keeps going viral in the kinds of places I hang out in on the internet is this little interstitial like uh, break. Um, uh, it's an animated color wheel uh, that went on in the early 80s, in the early days of Sesame Street. And um, it has music composed by Philip Glass for <laughs> Sesame Street. And I just love yep. it very, so much. Very and, on and brand for you. So. <laughs> Deeply on brand. It's also like early Philip Glass too. So it's like, it's it's not even like super accessible, but like it's just, there's so much respect for its audience of kids and at least for Sesame Street to expose them to to culture and, you know, say like, hey, this is something weird. And most people don't think this is for kids, but maybe it is. And here's a a composer coming through or an opera singer coming through and like showing it to them in this like really open way, which I think is just so cool and not really something I've really seen anywhere else in media. Well, being of a different generation than you, I was around for the VHS release of the Muppet movie, the sort of origin story of the Muppets. And I remember, you know, Fozzie the Bear, whatever, working. Working the bars, the bars, the bar circuit, (laughs) (laughs) and and the introduction of of Miss Piggy and the Rainbow Connection, uh, all of that stuff. Um, Yeah, and and like you, I did see Muppets uh, on um, PBS on uh, Sesame Street, Uh, but I think my strongest connection to the Muppets is actually their Christmas album with John Denver. Oh, uh, it's so good! Amazing that yes. that that, uh, that round Christmas is coming. The goose is getting fat. You know, like yep. that is forever ingrained in my head. Uh, the Muppets version of it. So, ah, <laughs> uh, see, I, and that those stories there, listener, are just a couple of the reminders how Muppets and those Jim Henson characters are so eternal, and they have delighted generations of children and adults. Uh, and actually, one of my very first big segments here on Opera Box Score was something that was one of the things that started my love of this and one of the things to really kick off this tradition, which was Beverly Sills on The Muppet Show. I've yeah. talked about this before, but we're going to talk about it a little bit more right now um, so that I can really let you in on how unhinged this segment is. <laughs> so it originally aired. In, so she was on The Muppet Show a couple of different times. Uh, this one, she originally aired in 1969. It was an opera called Pigoletto by the Muppetopolitan Opera Company. Amazing. The ma- musical mashup is absolutely unhinged. Uh, so Beverly starts with Traviata's Sempre Libra. The pigs come barreling in with Carmen's Toreador. We go back to Bev, interrupted by the March from Aida, which is carrying <laughs> Miss Piggy on a huge float, who then breaks out in Valkyrie's Hoya to Ho. And then she and Bev have a Hoya to Ho sing-off. We a real pastiche. Get to- 
yes, we finally get some actual Rigoletto from a pig singing to the tune of La Donna Immobile. And then finally, everybody is sort of finishing Sempre Libre together. It is, and it's all in like, you know, less than five minutes. We go back and forth and back and forth. And the thing that's so amazing about this is that Beverly is this consummate professional. And that is why this works. It's like, she's got the chops, but she's fun enough and silly enough and bubbles-y enough with herself to do this and have a really good time with it. And so I can't play you the whole clip, but this is going to give you a little insight into sort of how this whole crazy thing wraps up. We're going to play that for you right now. Yeah, unhinged is the only word I can use to describe it. But it again, Amazing. it makes me it makes me so happy. And that was that was one of the very first exposures I had to an opera singer. Clearly not when it first premiered, but in reruns of of the Muppet Show, I was like, "Who is that lady? She sings so high. That's so cool." And that is what started my love affair with Beverly Sills. So we've laid a little bit of a foundation here. Did you guys know that Sesame Street had its own resident? opera singer character Muppet. I did not know that. No. <laughs> His name is Placido Flamingo. <laughs> is it has still? Has he also been canceled? <laughs> is that why we haven't heard of him? <laughs> he has not been canceled. Nay. Uh, he is the one we still keep around. Uh, so this character was originally voiced by Richard Hunt. And this guy, Richard Hunt, was a master puppeteer. And he also voiced, hold on to your hats. Here we go. On the Muppets, Muppet Show, he also voiced Scooter, Janice, Sweetums, and Beaker on Fraggle oh, Rock. Wow. He voiced what a range. Yes. On Fraggle Rock, he voiced Junior Gorg, Mudwell the Mud Bunny, and the Fire Chief Fraggle. And then on Sesame Street, he voiced Placido, Sully, Gladys the Cow, and Forgetful Jones. So this <laughs> guy was like a prime voice. There was a gentleman who was taken over after Richard Hunt passed away in the 90s, but he was like the original uh, Placido Flamingo. And there are some really hilarious segments with this beautiful, beautiful character, some of which we're going to talk about today. Uh, there's a really hilarious uh, telephone segment called, uh, it's to the tune of Funiculi Funicula, and he's just singing about how much he loves his telephone. Uh, there's an operatic up and down duet where you learn the differences between up and down with Ernie. Um, oh yeah, he does a duet with Itzhak Perlman. Sure. Of course he does. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I like to call it Pagliacish because it's kind of Pagliacci, but like not exactly. Um, he does, however, eventually meet that other guy who has a name that sort of sounds Uh-oh. like his that we don't talk about a ton on this <laughs> they met in 1989 during a television special for PBS and it's actually a really beautiful duet uh, and the you know of course Placido Flamingo is also uh, you know a singer of Spanish origin uh, and so they sing together uh, they each do a verse and then they sing together while Placido Domingo sings in Spanish and Placido Flamingo sings in English while they have a crew of other Muppets around them. So we're going to listen to a little bit about of that now. Now perhaps we will sing together. Oh yes, I like that. I'm going to do it this time in Spanish. And I will do it in English. 
hacia afuera Abre el portón Y vas a sentir Una nueva emoción Mira hacia afuera Pues hay tanto que ver Ahí verás todo el mundo many other instances of Placido Flamingo. I could not get them all in this segment. They are definitely some worth a listen. One of my personal favorites, besides the Itzhak Perlman duet, which is genius, uh, is the up and down duet with Ernie. You learn a lot about the definitions of up and down. So I highly recommend checking out some Placido Flamingo clips. Uh, another segment that I really love, <laughs> it's a recurring sketch on uh, on Sesame Street that is a take on the PBS Great Performances. It's called Pretty Great Performances. Uh, it is <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Sorry, continue. <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, so the host is Phil Harmonic. Amazing. And it, Good. And it features the All Animal Orchestra recorded at Barnegie Hall. Uh, <laughs> and it featured such musicians as Sir James Galway. Okay. Uh, he plays a duet for flute and pool toy with seminal Sesame Street character Maria. It's a classic pairing, really. But the one that I really want to bring your attention to, and I'm going to play a touch of for you now, is a clip that came out in 1988. It is Italian street song from Victor Herbert's Naughty Marietta by our friend Placido Flamingo. It's conducted by who? Oh, yes. Seiji Ozawa. Amazing. Aww. Yes, yes. Seiji Ozawa's articulations in the video of the chickens is peak. It's ultimate. It's camp. Uh, we're going to play the opening for you now so that you can hear the introduction and the way that uh, Seiji Ozawa is described. Welcome to Pretty Great Performances recorded live from Barnegie Hall. Tonight we are privileged to be witness to the world premiere appearance of the Sesame Street All Animal Orchestra. Placido Flamingo will join the orchestra in a performance of the Italian street song from the operetta Naughty Marietta by Victor Herbert. The world-renowned very good sport, Seiji Ozawa, will conduct. Zing, zing. 
sing, 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 the live long day. Sing, 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 those mandolinas play. Sing, sing, everybody singing all their cares away. Ah, yes, the world-renowned conductor and very good sport, Seiji Ozawa. <laughs> I cannot, it is, I I just howled the entire time I was watching it. The way that, again, Seiji is like, he's in it, he's a good musician, but he's fun, but he is conducting this as if it's an actual orchestra. He's articulating the chorus of chickens. It is brilliant. It makes me, it gives me so much joy. This Can you tell I had fun with this? I had a blast. Um, <laughs> another little interesting piece of trivia. There's a really strong connection between Jim Henson and Maurice Sendak. So Maurice Sendak actually worked as an opera scenic designer and a librettist. Oh, really? Uh, you know, he, yeah, he absolutely did. So, of course, there's that opera, Where the Wild Things Are. He's the librettist for that because it was his book. But he was also designing at Glyndebourne uh, in the 80s. He was doing uh, Love of Three Oranges. He designed a number of shows for hmm. Glyndebourne throughout the 1980s. But Sendak and Jim Henson were in each other's orbit as Sesame Street was being formulated because Sendak worked for Children's Television Network. And of course, Jim Henson's characters were being used for Sesame Street. So they became colleagues and co-workers and friends. And Jim Henson actually came to Glyndebourne to see Sendak's designs and Sendak Aww. shows. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's a, that's a great connection that I never knew anything about. This is why I love it when Ashley does a segment because it's always so <laughs> like thoroughly researched and I'm just like sitting, just like enjoying the whole ride. I'm really just here to provide trivia that will be important to you for the next 10 minutes and then never again, unless you go to a cocktail party later. <laughs> now, the thing that really, like, is one of the longer-running traditions, our trend that our dear friend Bubbles started, were opera singers as guests, be it Sesame Street, be it The Muppet Show, be it a television special. Uh, there's just this long-running tradition of opera singers and then other classical musicians joining The Muppets. And I'm going to rattle some of them off for you now. These are all largely specific to Sesame Street. Uh, so, so in 1994, Marilyn Horn, oh yeah, that old chestnut, oh. Marilyn Horn, <laughs> does a really great uh, rendition of C is for Cookie. Uh, she also ends up teaching a voice lesson to the character of Ruthie, who is actress Ruth Buzzy, yes, of Laugh-In fame. Uh, <laughs> one of my other personal favorites is the... Denise Graves' opera lullaby with singing sheep. She is singing Elmo to sleep and teaching him to count sheep. <laughs> it's it's to the tune of Habanera, and she is singing English lyrics and singing this lullaby to get him to go to sleep. I highly encourage you to check it out. Um, Renee Fleming. Okay, this is the one that is, like, super elusive. Listeners, if you can find it, uh, a cookie for you. Uh, a Marilyn Hornsey is for cookie for you. In 2001, Renee sang on Sesame Street... It was the Aria Caronome, but it was counting one, two, three, four, five, ba, da, da, two, three, four, five. It's a five, four. It's amazing. And I remember seeing this like somewhere else in real time. It has been scrubbed from the internet. It is adorable, but it is absolutely not anywhere that is on my or Beyonce's internet. I couldn't find it. So if you can find it, I encourage you to do so. Um, also, even a little more recently, Isabel Leonard was in, uh, 
Sesame Street started doing a lot of digital uh, series for YouTube and other social media platforms. And it was people in your neighborhood. So, you know, the song people in your neighborhood. Yeah. So they started doing interviews with people in different professions to talk about their job and to demonstrate part of their job. And so Isabel Leonard, dressed as Rosina while she's in a production at the Met, does this really great conversation with two Muppets talking about being an opera singer and what it means. And again, just the warmth and the delight that she speaks with. And I also read from her, she was actually overseas when she got the call to do Sesame Street. She left. She got on a plane. And oh, she absolutely. Flew. I would too. <laughs> she I'm flew there. back to New York. She was like, I am not missing this opportunity. This is Sesame Street. So her interview is just the most darling thing. And of course, yes, she sings a little bit of Una Voce for them towards the end. Uh, but the one I really want to highlight for you happened in 1996. And that is from one Mr. Samuel Ramey, the Toreador himself. Uh, so he sings in an episode of Sesame Street in 96. He sings the Toreador aria. But again, he does that thing where they take the aria, but they change the lyrics and make it English and educational. Um, and so this is all a tribute to the letter L because the letter L is low and letter L helps him sing low. So we're going to mm. play a little bit of that Low Toreador for you now. L is the letter that I love the most. L helps me go. Low, 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 low. L can also help me la la la. L, I think you are swell. Oh, say, can you tell I'm in a spell? Under the letter. I mean, is that not the most hilarious? Thing? It makes me so happy. I, I feel like I I've mean, learned a lot about the letter L. <laughs> you, you absolutely have. I will also tell you, listeners, there is a, a very hard to find clip that I only found, I'm not kidding, on Italian Twitch uh, for the same episode, Sam Raimi in the ultimate Sam Raimi Cosby sweater uh, singing the alphabet and the alphabet instead of, you know, just going through the regular alphabet, he just keeps stair-stepping down to lower and lower notes until he's like <laughs> rattling in the basement for the Z. It is it is wonderful. Perhaps we will leave it as an extra nugget on our website for you to go and find. But again, these are just some of the many opera singers and classical musicians that have been a part of the Sesame Street and the Muppet Show orbit. It's absolutely incredible. I would like to leave you with my personal favorite the social media sensation that is Beaker. We're all familiar with Beaker, yes? <laughs> of course, of course. Yes, we're all familiar with Beaker, who at one point was voiced by the same guy, I will remind you, that did Placido Flamingo. At any rate, there are two videos that have made the rounds in the last, like, I don't know, five, six years. And the first one is Animal, Beaker, and Swedish Chef doing an acapella version of Carmen's Habanera. Enjoy. More work, 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 more
Beaker was going for it. He definitely that that melody. He was he was absolutely going. He is he's an institution in and of himself. He's just <laughs> such a delight, and he's such a joy. And with that, the final thing that I want to share with you is um, an all Beaker recording of uh, Beethoven's Ode to Joy. Me 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 me. fashion everything starts to fall apart at the end there are crashes there are explosions there's smoke it's perfect but it makes me so 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 happy so i hope that this has been something that you have enjoyed and it's made you happy too uh we're gonna link some of these videos on our site i would also encourage you to check out opera santa barbara actually put together a youtube playlist of muppets in opera it doesn't have everything but it's a pretty good little cross section uh so it's something that i think is just a total total hoot and that you will enjoy if you want more Muppets, DM me. I literally have a list of 40 clips I can share with you. <laughs> Let us know what your favorite Muppet opera moment is. You can send us a voice memo or email us your hot take on all of this Muppet-related madness at mailbag at operaboxscore.com. Or you can just record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say tab on our website, operaboxscore.com. Two-minute drill right now. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operaland this week. Last Thursday, after English National Opera Unions came to a tepid agreement with management, members of the chorus and orchestra started receiving pink slips during the intermission of the final performance of The Handmaid's Tale. Conductor Joanna Carniero was horrified when she learned what was taking place and then astonished that the performance showed no signs of the turmoil being inflicted on the performers in real time. After a year of uncertainty regarding the future of the BBC singers, the British Broadcasting Company announced a sustainable plan for the future for the vocal ensemble, one that draws on support from the Voces 8 Foundation. Details of the partnership have yet to be released, 
though it appears that the BBC singers and their support staff will continue to be employed by the BBC and that the ensemble will retain its artistic identity. A concert by conductor Teodor Kerensis at the Wiener Festwochen was cancelled after Ukrainian conductor Oskana Liniv, also on the program, raised concerns about his ties to Russia. Kerensis has not commented publicly about the war, but has been the center of discussion because of his relationship with VTB Bank, a Russian state-owned bank under sanction by the United States and other countries. VTB is the primary sponsor of Kerensis's group, Music Eterna. During a concert earlier this month, musicians of the Belgrade Philharmonic warned audiences that the ensemble is on the verge of failure. In a letter read to the audience, an orchestra member pointed out the ensemble's difficult position and organizational problems that remain unresolved. The Belgrade Philharmonic Orchestra is in the middle of its 100th season. Time for some major awards! Italian conductor <laughs> Carlo Rizzi was made a grand official of the Star of Italy for his commitment to the promotion of Italian music and culture abroad. The George and Nora London Foundation competition winners for 2024 have been announced. Congratulations to Maryland soprano Katarina Burton, Nola Mezzo, Emily Tregal, Texan Mezzo, Aaron Wagner, South Carolina tenor Samuel White, Vermontian baritone Benjamin Dickerson, and oh, oh, Arkansas baritone <laughs> Darren Keith Drone. You're all winners. Over the weekend, friend of the show Reginald Mobley was honored with the 15th annual Daniel Pinkham Award, created in honor of the late Boston LGBTQ plus composer for his advocacy for arts equity and contributions for classical music and the LGBTQ plus and allied community. And in more gay news, friend of the show Ian <laughs> Bell made Attitude Magazine's Attitude 101 list, joining gay luminaries such as Andrew Scott, my husband, Jonathan Bailey, my boyfriend, and Troy Savan, my twink nemesis. <laughs> Instruments played by the Orchestra of the Sea in its debut performance at La Scala were made from wood recovered from migrant boats that landed on Italy's shores. The craftsmen who created them are inmates in Italy's largest prison. The project, called Metamorphosis, focuses on transforming what otherwise might be discarded into something of value to society. Rotten wood into fine instruments and inmates into craftsmen, all under the principle of rehabilitation. London's Fashion Week had an interesting muse. Opera singer and eyeliner enthusiast Maria Callas. <laughs> British Fashion Line's Airdom's Autumn Winter Show was largely inspired by the late soprano with slicked back buns, bold black callous eyeliner, and silhouettes from Maria's heyday. Her greatness, status, and style made her almost a pop idol of the 50s, said label owner Airdom Moralioglu. She was renowned for being a real powerhouse. In trade news, Pablo Arca has been named the new artistic director of Rome Opera. Arca has previously held the same position at La Scala, Florence's Maggio Musicale, Teatro Cala Felice in Genoa, and the Parma Verdi Festival. The State Theater in Wiesbaden has a new music director. Leo McFall is currently principal conductor of the Thessalo Thessaloniki nailed it, State Symphony Orchestra and chief conductor of the Vorarlberg Symphony Orchestra in Austria. McFall's first season is set to align with that of the new Intendant and Dorothea Hartmann, beginning later this year. This month, Dr. Everett McCovery begins a three-year engagement as the inaugural Principal Guest Conductor at Opera Columbus. I am truly excited to embark on this artistic journey with Opera Columbus, a company known for its unwavering commitment to innovation and creativity, said Dr. McCorvey. The prospect of contributing to such a dynamic and forward-thinking institution is invigorating. 
Exit stage right, Brazilian conductor Tulio Colasiopo died at the age of 89. He was the chief conductor of the Municipal Theatre of Sao Paulo for 43 years. Scottish conductor Stuart Robertson has died at the age of 75. Robertson became the youngest conductor to lead a performance at the Cologne Opera. He went on to serve as artistic director for Florida Grand and Omaha Operas and was the music director of Glimmerglass Opera for 18 years. And on this day, February 19th, first performances include Antonio Cesti's The Misfortunes of Love. I probably was an Italian, but it premiered in Vienna in 1667. <laughs> it was the first performance of uh, Riccardo Zandonai's Francesca da Rimini in Turin and Douglas and that was in when 1914 <laughs> and Douglas Moore's The Emperor's New Clothes in New York City in 1949 other things that happened on February 19th in 1727 Handel became a naturalized British subject by order of the crown and that was in 1727 and birthdays include in 1743 composer Luigi Boccherini born in Lucca Soprano Caterina Cavalieri, who created the role of Constanza in The Abduction from the Seraglio, and Madame Silberklang in The Schauspiel Director. She was born in 1760. Spanish-Italian opera soprano Adelina Patti was born in 1843. Soprano Ella Torek of Bohemia uh, created the role of Susanna in Susanna's Secret by Volferrari and sang in the premiere of Dvorak's Rosalka. She was born in 1878. German baritone Willy Domgraf Fassbender was born in Echen. He sang in the premiere of Oedipus and was the father of Brigitte Fassbender. He was born in 1897. Australian tenor Max Worthley, who created the role of Clem in Britain's Little Sweep, was born in 1913. Romanian composer Georgi Kurtag was born in 1926. Russian tenor Vladimir Atlantov was born in 1939. And on this day, February 19th, Happy birthday to winemaker, Formula One enthusiast, and cancelled Italian tenor Vittorio <laughs> Grigolo, born in Arezzo. And that's your two-minute drill. Just a little bit of Cortigiani sung in German as Feile Sklaven uh, with the Berlin Radio Orchestra. <laughs> that was the birthday boy, Willy Domgraf Fassbender. Everything always has a different vibe in German, yes. I think. Berliner Rundfunk Orchester. Yeah. Okay, that's it. I love a Rundfunk myself, so. <laughs> I, love, I mean, Rundfunk, that's my drag name. Okay, so <laughs> Handmaid's Tale, I haven't, I haven't seen it, but I understand that it's like a harrowing show, and I can imagine, like, it takes a toll on the choristers to be in that production. Can you imagine Holy after an admission going on stage and having to finish? I mean, I w wouldn't you have just walked? I was like, okay, 
see ya, I'm out, you know? Honestly, yes. Well, and I couldn't help but, I couldn't help but think of the women a little bit more than the men. And I'll tell you why. Because Handmaid's Tale, like, the whole story of it is, you know, this return to Gilead, this return to, you know, the role of women being very different than what we think of in modern society. They're essentially broodmares. And the it's so to be in that space where you are performing in, in that environment and that culture and then to be even further reduced by this happened it just it god it just broke my heart and then it made me angry because who gets a pink slip in the middle of their job yeah so this is part uh, i i believe and i i will say it's not fully clear on this side of the pond yet but i believe this is part of the agreement that was reached um between the unions and management essentially they sat down after i think you all remember uh, maybe three, four weeks ago at this point, they initially voted to uh, go on strike. To strike, during, yeah. uh During this show, canceling the show, essentially. Um, and they did not. And part of the agreement that they came up with was this sort of kind of sucky agreement where it's like, yeah, some of you are going to be fired, um, but you will get some guaranteed part-time work. Some rehiring will happen. Um, you know, it's essentially a, a downgrade um, on on every level, which means that, you know, these the people doing the, these negotiations genuinely believed that these Arts Council England um, limitations on their funding were genuinely fundamental enough so that this had to happen, which is in itself kind of, um, you know, a harrowing thing to think about. Um, but I can't imagine that part of the agreement was, hey, let us know when we're being <laughs> made made redundant during a show. I like at the very I, I don't I don't know what that was. I don't know if someone meant to do that or if they're like, oh, they wanted the information right away. I would have just sent the email at the end of the day and like schedule sent it to happen at least after the show's over, at least after Absolutely the applause. Not. That's probably the lesson here is that this person who is in HR just does not know how to use schedules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. But man, this this sucks. I mean, it's it's so defeating to see that, you know, this seems to be the place that English opera is in since Arts Council England started slashing and hacking. Uh, on the other hand, I was extremely glad to see some actual good news out of England in the classical music world for the first time hey. in, what, three years? Uh, this BBC Singers uh, thing. Uh, what happened, Oliver? Yeah, well, this is a follow-up to uh, a story from exactly a year ago, I want to say, uh, when the BBC uh, announced that they'd be ending BBC Singers, which is the only professional chorus of that size that also does... Yeah. Tons of outreach and obviously collaborates with the BBC orchestras and is on many recordings and has their own concert series, etc. There was public outcry uh, and all of these uh, choral organizations and conductors like signed a joint letter to, I forget, it was Art Council England, I forget who was, oh, it's the BBC, just to not defund them. And then I think the audience also was very disappointed and there was a lot of like backlash and so they kept them afloat. They like put them on. Okay, we will. We won't do this just now. But uh, now they're partnering with Voce's Aid Foundation, which is in and of itself an incredible story. To think that yeah. 
this yeah. group that was started by a bunch of friends and became one of the most internationally renowned, you know, vocal ensembles. They now have a foundation and they do a lot of teaching through that foundation and publishing and developing of young singers, et cetera, that they have enough money in their coffers to, you know, help float the salaries of the BBC singers is amazing. Um, yeah, I'd like to see what that looks like. We don't have the exact, you know, plan for how that's going to go. Uh, but the uh, founders of Voces 8 said, as a global artist-led charity dedicated to inspiring people through choral music, the Voces 8 Foundation was committed to a positive outcome for the future of the BBC singers. It's an honor and a privilege to have been able to work alongside the BBC towards this news and through it to continue the foundation's commitment to finding innovative ways to extend learning and participation and serve and grow global audiences for the art form. The foundation looks forward to working together with BBC singers to demonstrate how choral music can positively impact communities in the UK and worldwide in the 21st century. It's nice to hear some good news. I hope that, you know, these kinds of alternatives are found quickly. I think what a lot of artistic organizations in Britain are realizing is that they need to be more strategic with their partnerships and their funding sources to stay afloat if this trend becomes a permanent trend as it has become in the U.S. It is you know? sort of on brand for England to save choral music and not save opera. <laughs> well, <laughs> that, that, that oh, is very right, on right. brand. That is true. So we have kind of a good news, bad news situation in Britain. Ashley, what's going on in Belgrade? Ooh, so many things. Um, so yes, there the uh, the Philharmonia is. Uh, having some dire straits, uh, and they have taken it to the streets and they have taken it to the stage. Uh, so yes, one of their orchestra members during this concert read a statement to the audience. Uh, and it's, it's really beautiful. It's, I'm not going to read the whole thing because you've heard me talk enough today, but there were two things <laughs> that really, uh, bumped out to me. We Philharmonicians live for applause, but unfortunately we don't live from applause. That's why we're demanding that the state raise that the salary. That is salaries. such a musician mood. <laughs> such an artist mood. God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're basically like, look, we just, we're in dire straits. We don't make enough money. Uh, the state isn't recognizing the value of this. And so that's why they did a call to action in this statement as well. If you want to support us, we invite you to write to the Ministry of Culture with a few words on what the Belgrade Philharmonic means to you and to appeal in your own way that our requests be heard and respected. So we'll uh, stay tuned. We'll see if this works from the folks in, in Belgrade. I mean, I think this is a great strategy. I, I love when, you know, I, I feel like in a lot of cases, the only way these things get changed and supported is when enough people stand up and say, this isn't, this isn't right, you know? And I, I, I think that's, you know, I mean, we've seen it happen uh, a little bit with the outcry uh, with the BBC singers, you know, so maybe this will work, too. And uh, hopefully it doesn't have the, the continued domino effect that feels like it's happening right now all over our industry um, in the wake of the pandemic. So speaking of messy situations, <laughs> Theodore Karensis and Oskana Liniv, uh now, Theodore Carenzis, we, we've talked about him before, obviously, especially in the context of, uh, of you know, Russia, Russia's invasion. Uh, unlike yeah, he, has people, he has declined to renounce Putin. Yes, he is, he's, not, yes. he's yes. not done that. He's declined and, to make any statement. Yeah. yeah. And his all. orchestra is funded by uh, a Putin uh, backing bank. 
you know. Yeah, a big, oligarch big bank. So. bank. It's probably catered by by Gergiev's restaurant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, and a partridge in a pear tree. Am I right? <laughs> uh, yeah. So this Karantzis got he's Greek, but he was Russian trained in terms of his his musicianship. So okay, so this is a this this is messy. Okay, so. This festival, they had planned to make the Russian invasion of Ukraine like a focus of their programming. This is what they were going to do. Are you ready? They were mm. going to juxtapose an appearance by Oksana Leniv, the Ukrainian conductor, with a concert by Kerensis. So they were going to have them basically like on the same program. This was an intentional thing. And Oksana Bold was artistic like... artistic choice. <laughs> yeah. Oksana was like... Ah! No, this is uh, he's he's really close. He's really close to the situation that is like you know hurting all of my people. Uh, so pressure continued to mount. To all of these people were having these conversations, and it just became more and more. I'll use a technical term here: icky uh, to think about these two folks on a program together. And so uh, Milo Rao, who's the festival's artistic director, he said in an interview le- uh, last week, the decision was clear. There was an alternative. This was the best solution from the bad ones. I gotta. I got to agree with him here. Like, this is, I can't imagine Oksana being able to keep together a performance when she knows that Karantis is going to be on the same program as her. Yeah. It, it's it's such a weird choice. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that Theodore Karantis is an extremely, extremely talented conductor, but you can't have those kinds of close close associations it's it's you know it's not as if he's just a you know a russian person you know it's not as if he's just like you know an incidental figure like he has financial ties these are very real material connections these are not simply accidents of birth and like I don't know what's in his heart. He specifically has not told us what's in his heart. Um, and that's because I think that he knows where the money comes from and where the audiences are. And I don't think it's a particularly artistically yeah. sound decision to just put it up there. To be charitable, you know, there is a possibility that he's just too afraid to speak out against. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. People, you know. But we, like you said, but he says nothing, so we don't know. Do I have this correct that he was supposed to perform the war, the Britain War Requiem, <laughs> which is an even weirder choice? It's yeah, it, yeah, which is a call for peace. So I mean, that's that's what's so crazy about this. And so this guy who's the artistic director, like he's got a reputation for being this really provocative stage director. So he had initially invited Karensis to be a part of this because he was interested in the idea of starting a conversation about art in wartime. On paper, that sounds like a lovely idea, but to have these two people, to have Leniv running the Kiev Symphony and the National Choir of Ukraine, and an <laughs> and a performance of Stankiewicz, who was another Ukrainian composer, his oratorio, The Kaddish Requiem, which was written to remember the 1941 massacre of Jews near Kiev by the Nazis. Like, th- I, okay, there's, there's controversial and there's provocative, and then there's whatever the heck this was supposed to be. And I... I get where he was trying to go, but man, I just can't. Yeah, I, I, I just can't imagine. I mean, I hope for the best for for Leniv. I even, you know, in my own way, hope for the best for Karensis and hope his heart's in the right place. But uh, yeah, this this situation had hair all over it. It is messy. Uh, and that's why I was so glad to see like kind of just a good story in, <laughs> in this two minute drill that was just like nothing too complicated. Just, you know. 
putting together these instruments uh, and performing them uh, in a in a context of peace and uh, reconciliation, and you know, uh, making inmates you know create something beautiful. I am very very much a strong advocate for the rights of prisoners, and you know, the uh, I think that you know even in Europe. There is a strong tendency to be punitive first and to see uh, prisoners as something less than human. And there's something so uh, tactile about creating acoustic instruments um, that are that are literally are instruments of beauty. And, you know, when I read this story, this meta- metamorphosis program, I just got a little bit emotional about it. I think the yeah. I think that. This kind of thing is always amazing. It reminds me of like the the, the performances that were done recently of um, Fidelio, where they used actual prisoners uh, in the prisoners' chorus and stuff like that. And it's it, it's something. And this this is something that is also provocative too, because you know uh, the European Union countries and Italy have not been the best about picking up you know migrants coming in um, and the and the boats that sink uh, in the Mediterranean and all that's left are these boards and you know putting something together like that that acknowledges the humanity of the people involved in this is really so powerful and I think something that music and the arts have a, a a real way of saying things that, you know, mere words just can't do, as you can tell by the fact that I'm rambling right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like, you know, I mean, talk about having, you know, using art to get across a provocative message. Like this is uh, one of the ways to do it correctly, uh, you know, is to sort of reinforce that that notion that feels provocative these days that no human is is incapable of redemption nobody is is not worth saving yeah. uh and so that was the thing that was really touching uh npr has a couple of really beautiful clips of the musicians playing the instruments i encourage all of you to check them out it is almost as beautiful as the mint green peacoat that was a part of the maria callas inspired collection during there's the London's transition week hashtag callas 100 <laughs> i will tell you the the Airdom collection is stunning and it very much is like what if Maria Callas were alive today and 27 and a little more pissed off than the regular Callas like it is <laughs> it's a stunning the mint green peacoat is the thing that like will not leave my brain it's got this gorgeous collar a huge button but yeah all of the women are like a modernized version of like the slick back hair the bun gigantic fierce black eyeliner and the clothes I mean the fabrics even look like they would have been the 1950s gowns that Callus was wearing as she was being escorted out the back of the Lyric Opera. Like, it's just a stunning, beautiful collection. And I am I'm delighted that somebody who's not in the classical music world really recognizes, like, what a bad B Callus was and, and used him used her for the inspiration for his entire collection. You know, I'm really glad that someone like Maria Callas existed because... You know, when you look at uh, an opera enthusiast like me, you would think that fashion sense just does not exist. I am currently wearing a flesh-colored T-shirt with Avatar <laughs> The Last Airbender stitched in the upper left to give you a sense of my sort of vibe. But, uh, you know, there are fashionable people in, in, in the opera world and Maria Callas, Oliver Camacho, Ashley Hardgrave, you're all proof of that. Let's wrap this show up. Good call, bad call. 
on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. That's how we end the show. Oliver, end the show for me. So two-time friend of the show, Christopher Lowry, the countertenor and choral conductor, uh, his ensemble Altera is about to drop its album next month. And there's already some teasers out there. One of those teasers is this video. Just a little bit of Eric's Eginvals's O Salutaris Hostia with soprano soloists Eleanor Cockerham and Elijah McCormick. It was exquisite. I cannot wait for this album. And Christopher Lowry will be coming back to talk to us about being internationally acclaimed countertenor and choral conductor, uh, putting together this super amazing new choral group and getting a record deal with Alpha. Man, I want just like... So impressed by them. So uh, that's my good call. Look forward to that album coming out. Ashley Hardgrave. Mondays from now to November have just gotten even better. And not just because I get to record with my lovely OBS gentleman on Mondays. Um, (laughs) John Oliver is back on last week tonight. So his recordings come out on Mondays. John Stewart is hosting The Daily Show on Monday evenings. And Rachel Maddow is on on Mondays. So in a mere 24 hours, I can inject into my veins <laughs> the genius of John Oliver, John Stewart, and Rachel Maddow. It is it is an embarrassment of riches. It is one of the most Ashley joy-bringing things that's out there. And it's all I'm going to talk about for at least the next couple of weeks. Well, the question is, uh, which one of us is John Stewart? Which one of us is Rachel Maddow? And which one of us is John Oliver? I'm going to let the listeners decide. You let us know. Yeah, let us know. Mailbag at OperaBoxStore.com. I call Rachel Maddow. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Get your voice heard and find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, OperaBoxScore.com. And that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS using the Support the Team tab. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. And your audio editor is me. For co-hosts Ashley Hardgrave, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera even after you get fired by email. We're back with an all-new show next week when Enrique Mazzola takes a free throw on Aida. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more slicked-back buns. Join us.